It can be really schizophrenic and doing great things on the one hand and doing terrible things on the other hand. Our job is to take all of that into consideration. Our whole American culture is really set up to support financial services, but not really to support the individual. There's many studies showing that, that companies that do manage their social and environmental risks do better over time. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Catherine Woodman. Catherine is a leader at Impact Investors, a financial planning and advisory services firm focused on sustainable and responsible impact investments. For 22 years, Catherine has professionally managed investment portfolios exclusively using socially responsible and ESG investments. Catherine has been a published columnist and an expert panelist, as well as an adjunct professor of investments and portfolio management, teaching courses such as Investing 101, Financial Independence for Women, and Analyzing Stocks. Welcome, Catherine. Great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's dive in. Tell us about the influences that shaped your work today. Do you, did you always view yourself as a, quote, entrepreneur? And what brought you to this point? Definitely not. I, I actually got my initial degree in theater arts. And, and it's funny because Tina Fey, I think, wrote a letter to her daughter saying something to the effect of, don't be so naive as to go into acting, but don't be so cynical as to go into finance. So <laughs> I, I basically I basically span that whole gamut. You know, in my 20s, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do that really had a lot of heart and passion for me. And, and I did come across the concepts of socially responsible investing and was really inspired by the idea of when a dollar changed hands or a transaction happened, that maybe something terrible, maybe it wasn't a travesty in the world, and maybe it could mean that something good was actually happening instead. And that's what really inspired me to do it. And before this, I also I was a fitness instructor for a few years and discovered that I really liked working with individuals and getting people to their goals and found that I really like numbers and which was all to my chagrin because I really made fun of uh, business majors when I was in college. But (laughs) here we are. So no, it was very much a surprise. That's incredible. And your firm (laughs) is called impact investors. And, you know, it's, it says it on the tin, but I would love to maybe ask you personally, Catherine, why is impact important to you and what causes do you care about? For me, I think the lead in was really the environment 
for myself, I grew up in the Midwest in Iowa and, and I had some difficult years. And for me, it was really spending time in nature that really got me in contact with myself. And, you know, I think for me, my sense of spirituality really came from my connection with nature and just felt at a pretty young age that the environment didn't have people speaking for it. And I saw what happened with farmers plowing in the fall and the dirt, you know, the topsoil just flying into the wind for miles and miles. And I just wanted to do something about it. So I think that 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 was really kind of the initial push. And since then, I went from really caring mostly about the environment to, to really becoming less misanthropic over time and caring as much about people. So yeah, I think that the wealth gap is one of the, the most detrimental things to our species. And and there are hopefully things that we can do to, to lessen some of the suffering in the world. Was there a specific nature experience like a trip that you took or was it like you went on a backpacking trip or what was there or was it just kind of a general evolution on that nature experience that kind of led you in this direction? I think a little bit of both. I mean, there was definitely there was one experience where I was in my teens and I was really depressed at the time and I wandered outside in the middle of the night and just had a totally transcendent experience where suddenly, you know, I just felt myself absolutely connected with uh, the trees and the sky and stars and moon and all just felt very much like I was a part of everything. And I think it really cracked me open and certainly has been a part of my part of what led me to also just be on a spiritual path and look at the world at, at that way. But also there was, you know, a growing of that sort of sudden experience and then really having more of the day-to-day experiences in nature. I think it's, it's both of those things. I think that's an excellent question. I, I, it made me think about, you know, my own personal experiences. I also wanted to come back to the asset management and financial planning world. So if you mm-hmm. were to, we were to go downstairs in Dallas, downtown Dallas, where we both are and pick somebody off the street and say, Hey, if you were to walk into insert, you know, XYZ bank name here, what would you expect from a financial advisor? They would probably say, well, you know, my meeting my financial goals. Maybe I want to own a house. Maybe I want to save more for my kid's college, things like that. But I know that impact investors and the work that you've cultivated over decades um, with your own practice has much more to it. How do you bring your values into your work in this space? Well, I think, you know, like you said, it's in the name. And so it's essentially everything that we are and everything that we presents. I mean, for for us, I think it's just, it's really just assumed when we, when we meet with people, it's always a balance because all of those things you mentioned are still true. All of the, you, you do still have to get people to retirement. You do still need to, you know, keep people as financially safe as you can while at the same time doing as much as you can. I mean, it's sort of that Venn diagram of, of where's the, the place where you can help to take care of people's finances while also trying to do as much good in the world as you can with their money. And it's, it's always a balancing act and it's, 
the world is not black and white, you know, especially the financial world. So individual company is like a person. It can be really schizophrenic and doing great things on the one hand and doing terrible things on the other hand. Our job is to take all of that into consideration. So when you are speaking with a prospective client about managing some money for them, is it typical for them to engage with you for like portion of their portfolio or for all of it? Or is that kind of a mix given your focus area? It's kind of a mix. I would say the majority of our clients have all of their assets with us, but there can be a variety of reasons why a client might want to keep funds in a, a retirement plan that they have or, you know, have another advisor handling something else. But I, for the most part, crypto, we're kind of the main financial advisor. (laughs) Yeah. When you onboard a client, I assume there's more to just, you know, what are your financial goals? You probably want to get to know them as people and what they care about. So how do you authentically engage with your clients and address their needs? Well, we do have social and environmental questionnaires where we get a sense of what people care about. There are differences among people, obviously, but we're assumed to be on the liberal side, on the green side. And so for a lot of clients, they really trust us to make those decisions, honestly. And I think it would really, it it depends on the client, you know, whether it's an individual or an institution and, you know, who they have to report to. There's a lot of trust involved with our clients. And I've had clients say, well, if you think it's okay, then it's okay. We're checking out all of the things that we think are a little bit more in the gray zone. (laughs) You know, like these are the downsides of this. Do you feel okay about participating in this? This is the financial benefit it gives. You know, are you okay with with not participating in that financial benefit? You kind of like have to go out into the weeds with some of the stuff just to get a sense of that. You know, I, I, I hesitate to ask the question this way always because it presupposes that there are actually differences between financial return and impact return. But mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of non-believers out there. There are a lot of you know people that believe that ESG is woke capitalism. How mm-hmm. would you dispel those myths if there is somebody that comes to you that that may not be fully you know, committed to aligning their money and their values and may not believe that that would produce the best results. I mean, my, my first response is that the, that person's probably not going to come to us. Right. <laughs> Honestly, we're probably not going to really have that conversation. But if I'm like at a wedding and suddenly talking to somebody who, who feels that way, the first thing I would say is that there's many studies showing that, that companies that do manage their social and environmental risks do better over time. That's actually the downside, I think, a lot of financial advisors, including my business partner, feels, is that if you're really looking at ESG as just eliminating risk, you could look at it from this very economic standpoint of like, I do ESG because it does better, you know, because I can depend on getting to my goals more easily. So that could be an argument for somebody who just wants to do it for economic reasons. The whole sort of woke capital response like kind of tickled me, maybe it shouldn't, but, but my fear, you know, throughout my career has been how much impact are we having, you know, Mm. especially in public markets where yes, there's things like shareholder activism that I think you shows has demonstrable results, you know, that you can point to, but if you're just screening out, if you're just one of 
of $6, one out of $6 that's screening out a stock? Are you really having an impact on that company? So that's been my greatest fear in my career. So the fact that there are people getting so like worked up about the impact of ESG is hugely heartening to me. I'm like, we must really be, we must really be having an impact if we are big enough for people to be scared of. I feel really good about that. I think that's a really good sign, personally. I think, and I haven't really heard this message much in so-called impact investing. You know, I read enough about it. I know enough people who are in the world now adding you to that list, Catherine. The, the thing is, is that the world, everything around us is always changing. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that is constant, is change. A lot of these, you know, so-called woke capitalism or impact investing, really just investing along the lines of the change that is already happening. I mean, yeah. cli- climate is climate change. It's changing. So what to do about it or, or whatnot is really just a function of adapting to change. I wonder if that wouldn't be a, a line of reasoning to some people that might break out of the cliches because mm-hmm. you say, oh, you don't think the world changes? Great. Do you think you look the same as you did when you're 20? You know, okay, good for you. <laughs> you know, you think, great. you know, what isn't changing is yeah. the question. Yeah. So why would investment strategies not change? Remain the same. And I think if you start mm-hmm. with a message of change and change is happening, and so what are you going to do? It, it might be a different perspective than, hey, we got to make an impact. We're two recordings in and we already have. Season three. Ed Stevens wisdom here. That's, That's a, a it's, it's powerful. I, I agree. I've been thinking about that so much. Yeah, it's such a good narrative. You need you need a post out of that, or we need to unpack that in a future episode. Catherine, you talked about public markets, and on your website, you give a couple examples of shareholder advocacy. So we've talked about like investing your values, but we haven't talked about exactly what that means. Um, of course, it could be investing in a company that you that you think is consistent with your values or is doing specific things, but shareholder advocacy takes things one step further. So why don't you talk and unpack public equities and how there's more to do there? Sure. I mean, basically in terms of socially responsible investing, at least how it was, you know, 22 years ago, and I'm aware that language keeps evolving, but in the olden days, it basically was positive screening, negative screening, shareholder advocacy, and community investment. It's the last two, at least for me, that I get most excited about just because with shareholder activism, the metaphor I've heard is what would you do if there's a bully on the school grounds? How much of an impact do you have just ignoring the person versus going up to them and saying, this is the behavior we would like to see. These are the metrics and the measurements that we would like to see. And if you don't think it's important, ask all your stakeholders, you know, ask everyone around you, see if they think it's important. That's why I think, you know, a lot of the really important changes you've seen has been as a result of that. So it's not surprising to me that there's been an attack on that form of shareholder activism, you know, to really eliminate or lower the number of people who are able to actually have a conversation with a company in their board. I'm on the audit committee of a public company. Mm. And I can say that the way these two worlds meet is pretty interesting, you know, because Mm. when you're sitting there on the board of the company, you're thinking about all the things that could go wrong with this. Like, oh, we're going to try to do this and then we're going to fall down or we're going to mess it up. And then someone's going to say you were greenwashing or you were promising something you couldn't deliver. And so there's, there's also a kind of conservatism in, in these companies where, 
you know, they're, they, they can fall. It's just interesting. Obviously, you know, with respect to our specific company, I wouldn't get any, any details, but it's very, very interesting to think about where, you know, the human beings sitting in the boardroom are thinking about, yeah, of course, this all sounds great. But, you know, at the same time, we, we got to go in with eyes wide open because this is so new. We don't know mm-hmm. exactly how this plays out. And so we got to wait a little bit or we got to see where the facts are before we can make a decision or do something. So it's yeah. it's not just like turning a blind eye. In some cases, it's thinking like, hey, I'm the steward of a pretty big ship here. I can't just yank it over and ch- change its direction back and forth. I can only turn it so many times. It's tricky. And Catherine, you know me as a fund manager, but I also am an investor who intends and you know fully aligns her, her resources and her money with her values. And since our last season, one of kind of my personal areas of, of growth has been to define my own theory of change. And that theory of change is not an SDG. It's a sustainable development goal area. It's not, you know, gender or climate, although of course I care about those. It is that the pie is not finite. And I think coming back to what you said, Ed, this is a mindset shift. And it is something that individuals and directors and CEOs need to accept as being beneficial. But there is a learning process in that, in, you know, in, in coming to a place where you are comfortable moving forward with more than just, you know, what impacts the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I think that just the discussion is what's important being able to have a conversation about it. And when you have rules and laws that are developed to shut down the ability to have a conversation, I just can't see who that would benefit. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the work that was done with General Electric, and they were pushed to come up with a way to measure their greenhouse gas emissions, I think it was, uh, or their carbon footprint or something along those lines. And they ended up developing a process to measure their own emissions, which they were then able to sell to other companies to measure their emissions. And it ended up being another, you know, stream of income for them. I just think that there, there are win-win situations that are available. And I, I get it because I'm a business owner. You know, having a, a hard conversation with somebody who's like, I want to see you do more, especially if a company is kind of maxed out in its ability to, in terms of resources or workers or whatever, I get that. And yet having it as a future goal, as an aim, I think is important, you know, because you have all these companies that are just kind of moving forward with whatever reality they're aware of. But the truth is that with the restrictions that we're facing, in terms of resources, in terms of climate change, there is going to be a funnel <laughs> through which these companies are going to have to be able to pass in order to for them to keep operating and moving forward. And I think those discussions can only help figure out, you know, where that where that change is going to be coming from and getting closer to the center of that movement as opposed to ending off heading off in, into space. We're now touching on 70 interviews on the Beyond Capital podcast. And 
one of the conclusions that I've personally had from this podcast and, and in interviewing incredible leaders like yourself, Catherine, is that what drives impact and returns is conscious leadership, leaders who are thinking about all stakeholders. And you mentioned stakeholders in one of your prior responses, and we've been talking a lot about your clients, but what about your employees? What about the culture that you've created at your company? What are the core beliefs, so to speak, of impact investors? I think it's really important to have to have a really positive environment, especially when you see all these news items coming up about, you know, really toxic work culture. I think probably like every company, there are places that we can get better, but I feel really good about, about our team. I feel really good about what we're offering our team and the support. I think I'm always, you know, trying to ask what they need and what would be helpful. And to a certain extent, you know, companies are just, you know, can very easily become dysfunctional families. And so I think everyone needs to be as healthy as they can, which I think as owners really includes looking at yourself and looking at your own shortcomings and being really honest about those and saying, this is what I can work on. And this is a shortcoming. And I know it is. And please try and help me. <laughs> you know, let's all, all work together. But I, I really love our team and we've had different employees over time. And, you know, when you have a team where the communication is good, where people have self-awareness and compassion for other people's foibles, it's just so wonderful. It can be the opposite of a dysfunctional family. It can be a really nice family. And that's, I think, what my business and partner and I have talked about. It's like we're creating, creating this functional, happy family. And so I feel really grateful. I mean, every time I'm on a team meeting, I just feel really grateful for everyone because I definitely couldn't do it by myself. That's for sure. Catherine, I'm wondering, you sound so thoughtful saying that. And I'm wondering, like one of the things that I really struggle with in kind of leading my team, especially younger members of the team, is just kind of around how much you should work, how many hours you should work. Because, you know, when I was in my 20s, I worked like 80 hours a week. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and I would be come home at midnight and you know, everything. And, and I, and I, I don't know how I would have done it any other way. And so when I look at some of the younger people and they were thinking, Oh, you know, like we're just going to put in a, a sh you know, a short day because that's good for the employees. It's good for their mental health, let's say would be kind of the most common way to talk about it. I'd be like, well, that mental health is good and it's important but, you know, when you're like 20 years later and you need to pay for college, it's good for your mental health to have a lot of money because then you can afford <laughs> to pay for college or retirement or whatever. Yeah. And so you're in the money business. You're in the, you know, kind of asset savings, like saving for retirement. I just wonder, you know, you of all people see that kind of asset accumulation pattern matching between people who worked really hard, people who didn't. How do we deal with that issue? Is there even a way to tack, to talk about it or tackle it that makes any sense? I have not found any way to make sense of that. I was talking about the difference between, are you talking about earning income or how hard you're working? Like how hard you should work when you're young, you know, a mm. la like, sure, is your employer taking advantage of you or are you investing in your career? Yeah. Well, I think it's up to every individual person, honestly. I mean, in terms of the employees we'd like to have working for us, you know, we want people who are, are willing to work to get things done and willing to be transparent about, about what they're doing because we're all, 
you know, remote, but people get to decide, you know, I remember knowing people in, in my twenties who would, you know, work a job for, for three months and then travel for six months and then work for three months and travel for six months. And, and if that's the life they want, I don't see any problem with that. But of course, yes, as a financial advisor, it's like, well, if you're not accumulating assets over time, mm, retirement might be hard, but retirement's hard for everybody, <laughs> you know? And actually, I think having the ability to set up a system where you can earn a lot of money and then travel, I mean, somebody who has the skills to do that could, I think, also have the skills to buckle down and make a lot more when they come to that realization. And you just hope they come to that realization in time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have had, I do remember really early on in my career meeting with a, a prospect and at 65 and she said, I want to start thinking about retirement and she had no assets. And, and it was really a wake up to me, you know, because the advice was, you know, work as long and hard as you can <laughs> or build a time machine or build a time machine. That was the other possibility or be like my but, dad my dad was 82 years old he's still working wow yeah he, he likes it but yeah yeah I think know. there's a difference between people who who like it and want to keep doing it and and the people who are like I wish I could I wasn't thinking about it I mean honestly our whole culture is set up our whole American culture is really set up to support financial services but not really to support the individual. If we really were supporting the individual, we would actually create systems in our society to support people to retire at 60 or 65 or 70. Social security isn't it. Medicare it's not enough. And and they're trying to take those away. You know, those like very very basic nets, social nets they're trying to take away. But other developed countries are way better at taking care of their citizens and their ability to retire than America does because we have this whole bootstrap mentality. You know, you have to figure it out. Oh, you're a plumber. Well, you also have to manage your 401k, you know, oh, you, you clean houses. Well, hopefully you can figure out how to open an IRA and, oh, that's not going to be enough of a contribution to really make an impact anyway, but hopefully you can figure that out. It's not set up to be easy. So yeah. unfortunately, yeah. so I know that it's keeping me in business. I know that it keeps me, you know, having a job, but I really wish our society was better at, at taking care of people. So before we get into our famous rapid fire section of this podcast, I do have one burning question. And okay. that is, how do you either compete or go up against the larger incumbents that are out there that are simply greenwashing and being mm -hmm. inauthentic about their impact. And I can tell you that not as a hot take, as a client of some of these institutions who wave a very big sustainability flag. And at first glance, you know, it's very easy to see that there's not, not really much behind their sustainability products. And you've demonstrated to us on this call, Catherine, that you are so authentic. So how do you handle this tension as a business owner? No matter how much marketing we put out there, we're not going to be able to compete with Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or, you know, any of the bigger firms. We are coming to it with a lot of history and, like you said, a lot of authenticity. And so I think for people who really care about that, I think they do sense it. But the problem is that, uh, you know, the kind of awareness and knowledge about the industry that you need to have to really pick that apart is not something that most people have. I think it's a tough situation 
for for investors, you know, who because the easiest thing, you know, the things that are going to come up at the top of the search are going to be these bigger companies that are sort of hopping on a train and and hoping to, you know, capture market share, but don't necessarily care about the world that they're creating in the future. And I started at, at Solomon Smith Barney, it was called at the time. And there were people there who really cared. So it's not, you know, a large wirehouse. It's not a monolith. And, and each individual advisor is different. But, you know, your corporate overlords, <laughs> they have a certain things in mind. And you may find advisors within that. But the question is, what what kind of tools are they given? and What kind of knowledge that they do they have? It's been really interesting. It's been a really interesting ride to see how this has changed. And recently, I had somebody say, well, I know this whole ESG thing is really chic right now. <laughs> I was like, Wow, that's so great, <laughs> you know, because when I started in 2000, it was not chic, you know, it was, it was something that you had to just constantly be trying to talk about and convince people about And So I'm glad that things have shifted. But, you know, you're right, it just gets hard. For me, I can look under the hood and say, oh, look, they have not a single socially responsible mutual fund that they're using in their lineup, but they're calling it green for some reason. But not everyone's going to know that. So let's dive into some rapid fire questions. Let's do it. What book is on your nightstand right now? Uh, Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It is pretty amazing. Uh, Like on the cover, it says it's the best nonfiction science fiction (laughs) they've ever read. And it is like a nonfiction science fiction. It's basically talking about climate change, but an alternate reality to literally like right now. I mean, the, the, I think it was written in 2020, 2021, and it's, it's about, you know, 2022 and 2023. And it's about the, that basically climate change continues to wreak havoc and this department, um, the ministry of the future is developed and how they confront the challenges. So I'm only a fifth of the way through, but it's pretty amazing. All right. I might have to read that one. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Caffeine-free, sadly. I would love, really? I love the, wow. the taste of all of it, but I, my body can't handle any kind of caffeine except chocolate, thank God. I think you're in the 1% of our guests who said <laughs> caffeine-free. <laughs> I know, I don't, I don't have many friends inject who it, are- Inject it in, in my veins. Thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Name something that is giving you hope right now. Something that's giving me hope. Um, I mean, actually, this book I, I find actually pretty inspiring. Just the fact that that uh, climate change is something that's just being talked about, at least if you listen to NPR, literally every day. I just find it inspiring that we are, I think we're having the conversations that we need to have. It gives me hope, especially listening to younger generations. What trend are you watching in your industry? This is very much not black or white, but, um, but a year or two ago, I raised my own chickens and ducks. And I was like, I want to see what it's like to be you know, part of the part of the cycle and harvesting my own meat. And what I discovered, not surprisingly, it's like, wow, it's all murder. Meat is murder. It's all murder. And, you know, it's not like, well, my chickens had personalities, but and were amazing, but the chicken I'm eating in the store doesn't. That's not the case. They're all, you know, these really cool creatures. And so I've been looking at things like at lab-grown meat, 
and and even plant-based um, alternatives to meat. Because I think if we are going to continue to evolve as a species, we need to minimize the amount of suffering that we are creating in the world. All right. Ed was a former vegan <laughs> at one point to throw that in. I don't know. Where are you now today, Ed? I'm, I'm keto. Oh, you're keto. Okay. Yeah. I'm paleo. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of protein in yeah. those diets. Flavor of the day. Yeah. What's one piece of advice you would give to your younger self, Catherine? It would mainly be about don't take things so seriously. You know, don't work so hard. Relax. Have fun. Take a breath. Don't stress. And what's one piece of advice you would give to a listener who may be thinking about launching their own business? Dun, 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 dun. Oh, do it. Do it. <laughs> just do it. That's right. Yeah, just start. Um, there's this great, I think they're a company called something like Pop-Up Business, but their main sort of philosophy around starting a business was find your clients first. So first reach out to the people that you think are going to be interested in whatever it is that you're developing and say, hey, I want to develop this thing. Are you interested in becoming a client? Do you want to pay a year ahead of time while I develop it? And that could be a way of making things possible that you might not otherwise believe are possible. That's really interesting. That's one of the pro tips from Chris Jenner's masterclass, mm. FYI, which I found Great. actually you know, quite interesting. So last question to wrap up, what is your bold vision of how impact investors can leave a mark on the world? I mean, I think the, the side of the business that I do feel most excited about is the private side, which you're involved in. And I feel like the kind of companies that we can help support or find capital for that could really make a change, that's the side I'm really excited about. So it's been really fun to see the private world in our business really coming to be as a result of the hard work of Monica Miller, who I've known for several decades. And so great that she's working um, with us now. I think that really seeing that blossom over time, alongside, I mean, public equities and public investments will always be necessary, always, always. But seeing just the potential of the, the private side of things, and even both in terms of the financial rewards and in terms of the kind of real impact on the world. I, I'm really excited about Thank you, Catherine. It's been incredible to have you on the podcast. Thanks. It's been really fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.